Hi, I'm Chesney in Aarhus, Denmark. And I'm Weldon in Nice or San France. And you're listening to... American on the Outside. So it's been a big couple of weeks in Europe uh, from a historical perspective, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we all got, in, in the U.S., you got Veterans Day off, but here it's, it's Armistice Day or Remembrance Day. It's celebrated differently, I think, a little bit. Yeah, it's closer to, to what Memorial Day is in the U.S. It's sort of a, a holiday for the dead, not for the, uh, for the survivors. Right. And it's a very somber occasion, unlike American Memorial Day, which tends to be kind of the kickoff to summer, which has always been. Right. You go to the beach, right? Right. Like, you have uh, a barbecue. Yeah. Um, there, there are parades and, and I think people do acknowledge the sacrifice of, of service men and women. But here in Europe and in the United Kingdom, it's, it's very somber. It's a very sort of sad, thoughtful occasion, I find. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not um, there's not furniture sales or things like that. No, uh, and no. Uh, some some places in France still do like drape the public buildings in mourning. It's particularly interesting in Paris because so much of World War One happened mm-hmm. like within earshot. Like you could hear the cannons on the Somme in Paris, apparently. Wow. Um, and I mean another. Uh, historical event we've had was uh, the Marine Corps birthday yeah. I was in the Marines and we had a we, we do a ball every year uh, and at the embassy the Marine guards bake a cake and rent a hall and we hire a DJ it's fancy um, too right yeah very fancy I, I was I wore a green smoking jacket as the MC <laughs> um, and you looked very dapper I th- thank you. I'm sure you will sneak behind me and post that on Instagram. Or I absolutely will. And you guys can find that at American on the Outside Instagram. <laughs> but there's a uh, there's a very famous uh, in the Marine Corps battle from World War One called Bellow Wood. Uh, and it happened. It was literally they, they left the gate of Paris and, and walked for less than a day and got to the fighting. And mm. that was sort of the first time. Uh, Marines fought in Europe, and it, it's just a, a big a big moment in our sort of collective mm-hmm. history as as a core. Mm-hmm. And it struck me like whenever I, I I'll drive by it sometimes, and mm-hmm. I'll see a sign that says Bois de Bello, and it's just so strange that this this name that had taken up this large place in my mental space when I was younger is actually it, it's a little there's a literal little clump of trees. Like it, it is an actual mm. wood that I'm standing next to. Right. Uh, and of course, I mean, Paris is full of that, right? Like, oh, that's Place de Concorde. That's where they cut Louis and Marie's head off. And it's also a metro stop where I go when I want to get French onion soup because there's a good restaurant there. But like right. it's the, these sort of ghosts the, uh, of of past events that loom historically, there there's this kind of uneasy way they sit on the actual physical place that still exists and is still right. used by living people every day. You know, yeah, and it's not just like battlefields; it's everywhere you everywhere you kind of step. When we were in Hamburg, they have the stumbling stones um, 
these little place markers of, of Jewish people who were taken from their homes where they lived and were eventually oh, wow. sent off to concentration camps and murdered. Uh, they have them outside of all over the place, outside of the homes. You can just be walking down the street and they'll, they'll be one, two or five, you know, just a whole wow. family of them. And, and mm-hmm. it's always very present there. Germany also this past week had not one, but two historical events happen. Um, oh, right. one, one was the night of shattered glass in which right. there was a, the, a lot of people. Well, the Jewish homes and shops were, yes. were broken into and looted. and things. Yes. And then you contrast that with, on the same day, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right, November 9th. Uh, November the 9th. You, they have a, a special name for it that escapes me at the moment. Um, it's a, a, a Stickelstag. Yeah. The, the, the day of fate. Right, right. Um, yeah, because what we were we were in what eighth seventh grade when the wall fell. Yes, so it's just weird that you have these two very significant dates in German history that happened on the same day on the same calendar date. Yeah, yeah, and so, I mean also uh, Hitler's putsch was on November 9th in the twenties. Oh wow! So three, yeah, three significant well, and more like uh, the one of the revolutions that that. Uh, brought Bismarck to power. It just the, the, the yeah, it's it's a day that keeps echoing in German history, which is why they call it that. That's so that's so weird. That's just one of those like weird twists of historical fate that I find fascinating. Like yeah. how uh, uh, Jefferson and and uh, Adams both died on July fourth, eighteen twenty six. Yeah, fifty years after. Yeah, that that just that still astounds me. And I find that most most of Europe is full of of ghosts and especially for people who are taught european history Mm. so extensively as americans are we don't know we know very a very little bit about like the rest of the world even though the Mm -hmm. rest of the world has so much interesting depth and a depth to history that we just skim over in the u.s but we really get into european history and to be able to walk around a city or a place and think, ah, oh, like, ha, huh. I remember studying about this in the 10th grade. Yeah, you, you go around these places and you think, oh, we, we lived in Greenwich. We lived very close to the Royal Naval College, which was originally the site of Greenwich Palace, which was one of the prominent Tudor palaces. Mm-hmm. And you can just walk across it and think, am, am I standing in what was the garden and what happened here? What historical events happened here? I mean, you go right. down to the Thames. Is this where Anne Boleyn got on the boat that would take her to the tower where she would very shortly be beheaded? And history is all around us here. It's it's partly why I find Berlin to be a very heavy town. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, there's there's so much and Berlin especially, I mean, it has so many physical scars mm. um, from from history. Right. That just like you can see, you can even though the wall is down, like the architecture on both sides of it is is unmistakably different. Right. You know? Yeah. I know Berlin can be fun. I know <clears throat> that Berlin can be exciting and avant-garde and experimental. You know, great and art, great food. Sure. Yeah. Great, great culture and. 
but it is just it's hard for me to separate those things from the history of a place sure um i find that to be true for a lot of places in in europe um if you go to rome rome is everywhere like ancient rome <laughs> is right everywhere and uh, and renaissance rome is everywhere and renaissance too. Every, it, rome is everywhere it's it's sort of rome is such an, an interesting city because it really it evolved but it also left i mean it's left its ancient structures a lot mm -hmm. of them more or less if not intact at least recognizable Does that right make sense? and well and yes and also it's had a the culture that tells the stories of those remains because those remains by themselves don't tell their story right, right? Like right. it, I, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to think, oh, every, you know, everything in Europe is old and everything in America is new, mm. but we lived near, um, guy, this is how, this is how awful our education about native Americans was. Like I still in my head call them burial mounds. They aren't burial mounds. They're, mm. uh, temple complexes, uh, by the Southeastern ceremonial complex. Right. Um, and those were being built in what during what in Europe was the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Right. Um, and it was this incredibly dense, high, sophisticated culture that has been erased. And so the those stories, you know, the the people all were killed and the stories stopped being told. And so we still don't know what those mounds that I mean, you you remember the mounds in northern Mississippi, right? Well, yes. I mean, I'm from Natchez, which were also uh, um, yeah. a, a mound mound culture. There's a bunch of a bunch of mounds in Natchez, right? So. And, and, and but we don't know what they looked like in their mm. heyday. Just like we have to mentally reconstruct the Colosseum, like mm. they they were complete structures um, right. and must have been awesome. Uh, but the stories weren't told. Like the, we didn't learn about who made them and why they were made and why they were used. Um, so we feel like that's prehistory. Right. And in the in the literal sense, it is in the sense that it's like there's not that historic, there's not a document trail, so it's it's not historic in the right. in the literal sense of the term. But in terms of the time, it was the 15th century. It was the 14th century. Like right. it was when Joan of Arc was happening. Uh, those mounds were being built, and uh, and it just and yet it feels so much impossibly more remote to me as a white American. Than Joan of Arc's baptismal church, which I could go visit right now, and it actually has a plaque that says Jean d'Arc was baptized here. Um, are there because actual? She's in the baptismal re record, and, right? Uh, you know, and and so that that tradition wasn't uh, extirpated, was not destroyed. I, I think it, it's just important to me to recognize that. E Yes, it, there's this long history here that I can feel, but there's just as long a history everywhere in the so-called new world. Mm. But we destroyed the we destroyed that connection, so we we lost access to it. And I think that's it's not that there aren't ghosts in the U.S. We just don't see them, whereas we do see them in in Paris and and Denmark because we've been taught about them. Well, I also think that to see them, you have to know about them, and a lot of a lot of the ghosts of U.S. history have been either erased or rewritten, right? So that we don't know we don't know what the real ghosts are, right? When I worked at Mount Vernon mm -hmm. um, with George Washington's 
mansion mm-hmm. plantation. Right. They had um, they have a cemetery there and you can see. Well, he, you know, there's this this very grand tomb that George and Martha are interred in. And then there's uh, Martha's children and some cousins are buried in a very neat little cemetery. Uh, and then there's this sign. It's it's awful. They've they've made it better since then. But it was a sign that said, like, this was the old slave burial ground. Mm. Uh, we like we've lost the markers. We don't know exactly where they're buried. And you're probably standing on them. Yeah. Like, like it wasn't th- like that was the implication. Like you have probably walked over graves to come read this sign because we don't actually know where the slaves were buried. Wow. But yeah, that sense of not just. I mean, maybe with the with the with the Natchez people, they all got smallpox and died, and 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 we lost. There was some accidental loss, but there's also very deliberate erasure that's happened. You know, right? Well, I, like I said, I am from Natchez, and Natchez was very much a plantation mm-hmm. center. There was, you know, it was at one point in time had the highest rate of millionaires per capita in the country like it had wow. more millionaires per capita than new york city at one point oh of course because those how ha- like those somebody built those houses yeah right. somebody built yeah. those houses and the houses are are you know i grew up seeing those houses not necessarily as a young young person understanding the history behind those houses and mm-hmm. when you grow up seeing something beautiful you kind of love it for the beauty of itself right not sure but then as you get older and you understand the history behind it mm-hmm. and the things that went on there and the things that occurred there, you have this very, conf- these two conflicting emotions, like the horror of people owning people. Right. But also sort of like, but this is a really beautiful house right. that was built on, you know, on the backs of people who were kidnapped and enslaved and you know, tortured and murdered. And it's a very complicated relationship that I feel like I, I have with a lot of places in the United States. Yeah. Um, especially again, as I get older and as I learn more completely the history of the United States, and it is a history, I think that for a very long time, you had to seek out. Yeah. It was, it was not freely given it was something, especially in the South, that we tried that we tried to hide and cover up, and, and, and it was not, not polite to talk about. It was not and, polite. No, absolutely, yeah. it was not. And I think I think it is being addressed more straightforwardly. Um, mm-hmm. It is good that people are saying no more. Well, this is we will not try and cover this up anymore, or hide it, or change it, or. Mm-hmm whitewash it or <laughs> any pun absolutely intended um <laughs> it, it is it is okay and right that we acknowledge the wrongs that were committed in the past we cannot yeah, it's, oh. well I mean, we can't learn from them and unless we do uh, unless we do that we can't we can't be better going forward i, I absolutely agree like it, it strikes me it's currently in Germany, it's illegal to sort of publicly deny the Holocaust. Yeah, absolutely. Happened. Yeah. And, and and then currently in the U.S., it's becoming illegal to teach that America was founded on slavery. 
Like, right. like it's it's we're moving in the opposite direction in the U.S. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, but it's it suddenly strikes me like it's precisely by owning up to the the because it's not like Europe has had a shortage of horrors. Oh like God, by, no. Not even in this century, I, um, but by owning up to them, like that is how you kind of create that. I mean, that's <clears throat> that's how you create that sense of history and connection that a lot of us in the U.S. don't have. Right. Uh, and of course, if you aren't taught what actually happened, uh, you're not going to have a connection to it. Right. Because right. it, you don't know about it. Like you, you just think, oh, somebody made this mound in 3000 B.C. and they disappeared. Like, no, they were murdered by white settlers who wanted their land. And uh, it, but that's, you know, that's a step you have to take to actually I don't know, to integrate, to use a, a problematic word, like the present with, with what came before it. And that, and that's, and that's important. Like that has to happen. Does, uh, does Ardhus, I don't really know much about its geography. Does it have like a, a subterranean layer, like catacombs or anything? Uh, no subterranean layers here. Uh, it's very, this part of Denmark is a uh, very oh, it's swampy. Marshy, right? It's yeah. swampy. There's a lot of peat. There are no catacombs around here. They're all, it's all bogs. And sometimes the bogs give up artifacts, like a massive trove of like coins or something, right? Coins are dark age, dark age, like weaponry. Oh, wow. From a battle that happened, you know, a 2000, like almost 2000 years, 1500 years ago, uh, like where you have still people. Who are using Roman swords, <laughs> um, and they lost, and so that they get tossed into a a, a, bog, a bog or a lake, and then we find them, you know, fifteen hundred years later. Oh wow! Um, the reason I asked because there's a sort of analogy for history I like that there's an architect who said about Paris that you have to remember that everything you see above ground here. Mm. used to be below ground because it's built on limestone that's been quarried to make mm. the buildings. And so you have all these subterranean passages and vaults mm. and tunnels. Right. And, and and of course, in Paris, famously, they put the bones from the cemeteries in there and the catacombs. Right. But even a thousand years worth of bones only fills up this one tiny corner of of all the subterranean parts of Paris. Right. Um, and that the, there's a place up in the 19th arrondissement where during the 1871 commune, I think it was when, when Paris was revolting because the Prussians had beaten the French army. Mm -hmm. And so the Prussian army came and besieged Paris to get them to, to stop revolting. Right. Um, and there's a place where an artillery shell landed and broke through the surface down into the catacombs like and then passed those catacombs into this like medieval cell <laughs> that monks had used from an abbey when they were hiding from the it's pre-medieval like hiding from the vikings when they would raid oh wow but then it's all just like it's all vertically so close to each other um and and the parts above are made of the parts below right, right? that that you're you're building your modern city out of what came there before. Right. 
Um, and I just really like that analogy of, of how the past, um, collects, uh, you know, like the world is a sedimentary rock kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's really, really poignant and apt because I think, I mean, it's not just the physical history. It's also sort of Mm -hmm. the emotional history and the written history also is built upon, you know, new, new information. Somebody finds a letter. Right. Somebody, a painting, a piece of music, some long forgotten document that mm-hmm. we didn't know about that adds um, a new layer to our understanding of the time period. Yeah. Um, and even I mean, some very small things like the Bayou Tapestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, no one ever said, oh, we've started using stirrups. Right. No one wrote that down. Yeah. But it's the first time you see them. But you see them in the Bayou Tapestry, and so we know, oh, maybe that's why their cavalry was so much better, because they had stirrups, which no right. one had had before, you know. But no one thinks to to announce, we've got this great new technology, yeah. the stirrup. The <laughs> stirrup, right. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, when the appearance of a new arrow or something appears yeah. for the first time, but we find it in a tree. That, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Someone's target practice, and yeah. Right. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I find history to be fascinating in that sense. My oldest son is is very fascinated by history. He just mm-hmm. is like a he's a history sponge. In fact, uh, our interviewee today, um, Bill, was recently in a place to celebrate uh, <laughs> to celebrate another event in British history, Guy Fawkes Night. Which, well, then, what is Guy Fawkes Night again? Uh, well, it was when the Catholic uh, theocratic terrorists tried to blow up the Protestant Parliament. We, we see a we see a common theme here. I think. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Bill was in uh, the Battle Abbey to celebrate Guy Fawkes Night on November the fifth, and. He posted on Instagram and I had never heard of Battle Abbey before. And I saw it and I said, hey, guys, Bill is in Battle Abbey. And where do you think that is? And before I'd even had the sentence out, my oldest was like, oh, Battle of Hastings. (laughs) Battle of Hastings. So there there's William of Normandy again. And the Bayou Tapestry. And the Bayou (laughs) Tapestry comes comes back to play. So our interviewee today is a, a longtime friend of ours from high school. He's a really interesting guy and a lot of fun to hang out with. And I, I hope I hope everybody enjoys hearing his story. So here's Bill in London. We're going to start off with the question we ask all of our guests. Where are you from? Well, uh, great to be here. Uh, thanks, Chesney, and uh, thanks, Weldon. From Starkville, Mississippi, born and raised, uh, 18 years. Um, I went to university in North Carolina, um, where I uh, spent four years, four and a half years, uh, and then immediately picked up and moved to, to New York City. Uh, at the time, it was the height of the internet boom, and uh, the only thing I felt that I was really good at was computers. So, had some friends in the finance world uh, in New York, and a cousin where I could crash on the, his couch, and so I went up there and lived in New York for about ten years. So, now, it, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, so if we could take you take you back to to Starkville for just a, just a bit, um, tell us a little bit about like uh, your your parents. What were your parents doing in Starkville? Are they from Starkville or or from elsewhere? Uh, my father uh, is a Yankee. Actually, he's from uh, the Boston area, Boston and Maine. Uh, and my mom is from uh, Wisconsin. Uh, they were both German professors at Mississippi State. So um, they were married and looking for places to teach. And Mississippi State thought they wanted to start a German program. And so they offered both of my parents jobs. Um, and that's how they ended up in, in Mississippi. So how long were they in Starkville before you came along? Mm, two years, maybe. Two years. Do you, do you have any siblings? Uh, I've got a twin brother and an older brother, uh, both uh, still in the in the states, but not no longer in Mississippi. Where, where are they now? Uh, my twin brother is in uh, North Virginia, works in D.C., and my older brother uh, is in Austin, Texas. Uh, what was it? What was it like growing up in Mississippi with a twin? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was fine. Um, Growing, I guess growing up as a twin, you uh, you sort of get used to people calling you by different names. Um, you know, most people knew that we were twins and they would just get our names mixed up. We were just one or the other. Um, so I was either Bill or I was Ted. I got used to <laughs> answering to both. We're fraternal. You know, we don't look we don't look alike. But uh, people you had a, you had a good 12, 13 years before the movie came out. And, and that suddenly became what everyone noticed, I assume. Yeah, I think it was, I want to say it was sixth, sixth or seventh, or seventh grade. grade. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember the, I mean, I remember the first time I, I heard that this movie was coming out. Um, uh, someone stopped me in the hall uh, or in the staircase of the school and said, hey, you hear there's this movie coming out. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You've got to be kidding me. That can't possibly be true. And, uh, yeah, and then that pretty much defined the next <laughs> five years of social interactions. But it actually helped because uh, uh, it was a really great icebreaker with people. Uh, you meet mm -hmm. new people, and, and uh, you know it's always hard for people to remember your name. But you would say, "Hey, you know, my name's Bill. I have a twin brother named Ted," and then they would remember that. They might call me Ted, but <laughs> they would remember. And I was used to being called Ted, so it was fine. So when you, when you were growing up, was uh, Starkville was what what you called home? It was, yeah. We lived in in town. And um, after after Starkville, you went to North Carolina. You said, uh, yes, uh, Winston Salem, North Carolina, Wake Forest University for uh, four and a half years, and yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, it was not Mississippi, and that was good, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, it still wasn't wasn't quite where I wanted to end up. Um, New York was was calling. You all, so you always wanted to to get to New York. Was that like a dream from a young a young age, or did it something that developed over time? Uh, I think it was. It, I, I'd wanted to for a very long time. Um, my dad and whole side of the family are all Red Sox fans. Um, <laughs> And I was the asshole child that just wanted to be ornery. So I would always pull for the for the Yankees. <laughs> so it was always kind of in the back of my mind that I wanted to, to move to, to New York City. And uh, 
So when I graduated, it was, yeah, it was top of my list. I think uh, for a lot of people who grow up in a small town, there's this uh, idea of you either have escape velocity or you don't, you know, the sort of the giant yeah. sucking sound. Uh, I mean, would you say you always were, were aimed, aiming at, at leaving orbit? Yes, definitely. It was, <laughs> it was always a, you know, it was, I was brought up to, to expect to be going to, to college. Uh, and so when that came, that time came, I, I didn't even look in uh, Mississippi. I wanted to, to go elsewhere. Uh, how did you, how did you settle in Wake Forest? They were, uh, I was looking for a smaller school. Uh, I didn't want to go to a school with, you know, 15, 20,000 people or, or more. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, both my brothers for, I don't know, from like the sixth grade, they knew what they wanted to do. Um, my older brother wanted to be a, an architect. Uh, and um, my twin brother wanted to be in aerospace engineering. They for years and known what they wanted to do. I never did. So I wanted a liberal, liberal arts education and uh, Wake Forest kind of hit the sweet spot as far as size and uh, campus was beautiful. Uh, and it just, just mm-hmm. kind of clicked. So how did you settle on the thing that you wanted to do with your life once you were, once you were in college or did you? There are a few moments in your life, in your life when you have a specific moment that you can pick out and say, this changed the course of my, my life. And mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know when I was a senior in college, I didn't know uh, what I was going to do with my life. Um, I wasn't a particularly good uh, student in college. I focused more on the social activities <laughs> than the um, than my education, which I have some regrets now, but I think it, it worked out. Um I was a communications major. Um, my my average was in this in the two point something range. Um, I didn't really see what I was going to do. I didn't have an idea of what I was going to be able to to do once I got out of college. And and I remember having this uh, sort of come to Jesus moment, sitting out on the the quad on the in the sun, looking out, thinking you know, just before my senior year, thinking, what the heck am I going to do? Uh, and I said, all right, well, what are, what are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? And computers came up uh, and I was like, I'm good at computers. I'm better than almost everyone I know at, at uh, working with computers. So maybe I need to focus on that. Uh, and, and then the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, 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 I went, I went in, that day. I, I went and talked to the, um, the help desk uh, at, at the university. They had just, announced uh, this program it was called the class of 2000 um i was class of 98 but class of 2000 everyone was getting a laptop um, and this was brand new across the country mm-hmm. we were one of the first ones to do that and so they were really ramping up all of their it uh, resources and so i went in and i was like hey do you guys need help with anything they're like oh yeah we've got one job opening uh with our help desk um it's monday to friday 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. And up until that moment, I had literally never had an 8 a.m. class in my senior year. I had avoided every 8 a.m. class and I would just <laughs> sleep late every day. And and I just I went back out to the quad and I thought, well, you know, either I can carry on as I'm doing and and graduate with a bad GPA and a 
degree that's kind of useless. Uh, or I can get some work experience. I can tighten up and wake up every morning. Um, <laughs> and so I, I said, all right, I'm going to do that. And I did it. Uh, semester, you know, working help desk, um, a summer uh, installing uh, servers and routers around campus in the different dorm rooms. Um, and that gave me the work experience that uh, when I graduated, you know, I, it was the height of the internet boom. And a lot of companies didn't care what my GPA was. They right. they just wanted people that had uh, computer experience and and could talk to people, you know. And I fit the bill, and uh, yeah, and I've been in that business ever since. Oh. And uh, where where are you living now? I'm in Tooting in London. Tooting. <laughs> uh, Tooting. It's uh, southwest London. It's south of the river. Um, my wife and I have been in London for, I guess it's 13 years now. Uh, wow. she's, she's American as well, uh, which is probably why our accents haven't changed too much. We kind of keep each other in check. If I, um, uh, if, if I, if I start feeling like I'm getting a, a British twang, <laughs> um, I try to, to remember my voice from Mississippi put on a little southern drawl and that kind of, <laughs> kind of brings my accent back into neutral so how how did you end up in tooting in london um <clears throat> so i played i've played soccer my entire life uh, when we moved i played in new york um yeah i played in college i didn't play college ball but um high school college when i went to new york i played three or four different teams um in new york and so when I moved to London, the first thing I did was find a, a football team. And uh, within two weeks of being in London, I had found a squad. Uh, and that was in it was in southwest London. We lived in Clapham at the time. And uh, it was Albion uh, FC. And I've continued to play with them uh, for 13 years. Um, now more in a management capacity than a player. But... Uh, they're based in, in Southwest London. And so when we uh, saved up enough money to buy a house, it was all right. We have to be down here because this is where, this is where I play football <laughs> and where we had our, you know, our closest friends were all down here. So. And can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what the transition from, from New York to, to the UK was like, what were you doing in, in New York and then what brought you to the UK? All right. Um, so my wife, uh, my wife and I, we met at work. Um, we were both working for the same company, both in IT. Uh, she was recruited to become an IT manager uh, for a European team with our company. Uh, and at the time, um, our New York offices were pretty small. And if we wanted to advance our careers, it was either go to LA or go to London, kind of the two global headquarters for the company. And um, she hated LA uh, <laughs> and she got this offer to, to come to London and they were able to uh, find a position for me as well, uh, kind of a lateral move. And so we said, hey, how often do you get a chance to pick up and move to another country? So we just kind of bit the bullet. We loved New York. Um, it was tough to leave, but at the same time, uh, change is good, and we we felt that uh, it was the right move, and we've absolutely loved it ever since. So good choice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
you know, London and New York are two of the, the biggest, most energetic cities in the world. Uh, but they're much, much different. And that initial change was, was pretty difficult. So, I mean, uh, say more about that. What, what has struck you as the, the biggest differences between the UK and the US or between London and New York? Yeah, I mean, big, big subject, I guess, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> New York, um, I mean, I lived in, in Manhattan um, in the East Village uh, where I could step outside of my building, um, you know, at 3.30 in the morning and there were within a two block radius, uh, there would be four 24-hour bodegas that could make a sandwich for me. You know, Grace papaya, uh, yeah. It's like everything like it just didn't matter what time of the day it was if it was christmas or whatever you could everything was open all the time and it was a, a two-minute walk away um and we thought oh we're, we're moving to london it's going to be similar and <laughs> <laughs> that was a harsh reality where you know we were still in a very populous area but we were a 10-minute walk to the closest uh, uh, you know, corner store and, and they closed at nine. The grocery stores <laughs> closed at eight. The only thing you could get delivered was a, a, a curry or a pizza. Pizza with tuna um, on it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was, that was a big change because we just in New York, you're used to having everything be able to be delivered, every kind of food delivered, um, quickly go out and pick up things whenever you wanted to. And, so that was kind of a change. I, I realized for most of America, it's it's not like New York, and uh, probably a little more similar. But now there's Seven Elevens everywhere, and that's that's just something you sort of learn yeah, to do yeah. without overseas yeah, most enough. places. I think. Yeah. There are like three here, like within walking distance of my house. Oh yeah, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Seven Elevens. Yeah. Pace in London is is much slower. I mean, it's still it's crazy, right? Outside of COVID times, um, you know, you can find people doing anything you want in London. Uh, whatever your interests are, you can find other people doing it, which is similar to New York. It's just much more spread out. Mm -hmm. in New York, everyone, everyone's kind of on top of each other here. Um, it's all within an hour or two ride, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's here. It's just spread out. And that was a big change. It, the pace isn't quite as, as frantic as, as New York City. Mm. So when was the uh, last time you were in the U.S.? Uh, we go back every year. Um, my father lives in Maine now, mm -hmm. so we, we go back for a couple weeks every year. Uh, and then if there's uh, weddings or funerals or special uh, things like that that we have to go back to, uh, we try to minimize how much we, we come back. Um, we, we plan to retire back in the U.S. again. Um, I still consider the U.S. my home, hmm. um, even though even though I'm a, a dual citizen now, so I've got U.K. citizenship. Um, we plan to return home, uh, but while we're here, we want to use our vacation time to to see as much of Europe as we can. So we try to minimize uh, returns to the U.S. as, as much as we can. Hmm. This year, of course, with right. COVID, um, we have not gotten on a long distance flight or any flight. Um, so it's, it, I'm really, really missing Maine. It's, it's been tough uh, this year, but uh, it'll turn around, I'm sure. What's the, uh, what's the lockdown and situation been like in, in your part of the UK? 
Um, it's been it's it's been all right. Um, um, we're lucky enough. Uh, we don't have kids. We have spare bedrooms in our house, mm. so uh, my wife and I can have separate rooms where we're set up for work. Um, our work allows us to work from home, so we're pretty fortunate in that. So it hasn't been uh, too much of a burden for us, but I certainly appreciate how difficult it's been for for many people. Uh, the I would say most of the people that I know um, have taken pretty well to the situation um, and take it very seriously. Um, you look at the overall numbers and maybe that indicates not everyone is, is doing so, but um, I kind of feel like there is this uh, blitz mentality hmm. um, in that it's, it's our, you know, the British psyche is, you know, we do what needs to be done. Stiff um, upper lip. Exactly. Yeah. Keep calm, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, that has helped me that that mindset uh, of you know think about what they must have had to go through during the blitz in world war ii um and apply that sort of mentality to this and uh just yeah keep calm and and carry on (laughs) so you said that you do you guys do plan on heading back to the states at some point for retirement have you guys thought about where that might be or do you have dream plans Maine, definitely Maine. Definitely Maine. Um, it's yeah. We we got a lot of family up there. Uh, we go back we every every summer. Uh, growing up, we used to drive from Mississippi to Maine uh, every summer to spend um, anywhere from one to three months uh, up in Maine. So that's kind of our our second home, and uh, without a doubt, that's where we want to retire. Uh, my wife had had one rule before we got uh engaged and it was um no kids mm. and i said okay i can i can handle that as long as uh, you have to agree that when we retire it has to be maine so <laughs> that was our deal <laughs> so you said that you guys took a road trip from mississippi to maine in the summers what was how long did that take and what was that like <laughs> uh, it was three days um because my parents were both professors, they could, they could, uh, um, I mean, sometimes my dad would work summer school, but, uh, we, my mom would have the summers off. So yeah, we would drive, uh, one day from Starkville, uh, to Virginia where I had an aunt and uncle. So we would stay overnight with them. The next day we would drive from, uh, Roanoke to, uh, New York and stay with, uh, another aunt and uncle. And then from there, um, another full day from New York all the way up to uh, the Bar Harbor area. Sometimes we'd stop in, in Boston. It was about a half day from New York to Boston and then another half day from Boston to um, Maine. But yeah, three three full solid days of driving <laughs> with uh, three boys in the back of a station, station wagon. wagon. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how my, my parents... Uh, put up with us we must have been absolute monsters but i also have three kids and i cannot uh take them on a 15 minute train ride without some sort of fight breaking out so uh, (laughs) your parents are saints well we had (laughs) lots of uh lots of books um lots of of toys that we bring with us um if we didn't like reading it would have been it would have been bad but um did you have a walkman uh, eventually we did yeah there was a lot of listening to 
I remember we had Lord of the Rings on tape and The Hobbit on, like the I guess the old, is it, I don't know if it's BBC or NPR, um, but recordings of The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. What is your favorite British word? Hmm. Oh, you should have given me a heads up before. <laughs> uh, Profanity is fine on a podcast, I'll, by the way. Totally fine on a podcast. <laughs> Our last yeah, interviewee but, said bollocks in this uh, situation. So yeah, yeah, my profanity has definitely changed uh, since coming here. Um, it's going to be awkward when I go back home, and it's the U.S. doesn't uh, like the same words. Um, <laughs> I mean, a pint is pretty great. Love to go to the the pub and get a pint. Ah, the the, the beers are larger here than in the U.S., which is great. I, I go to the bar in in uh, in the U.S. and these little tiny twelve ounce. They call them pints, but they're not pints. <laughs> they're like half pints. Oh, cheated. Yeah. Plus, there's Ugh. still that American obsession right now with like how many hops can we stick into 12 ounces of beer and sell oh. it to people. <sighs> right. Beer has changed quite a lot since I've been here in London. When we when we first got here, the bars were, were all just uh, the mass, uh, mass market beers. So you have like your Heineken and your Stella's and fosters and that's all you would find in every single bar you go into um but now they've really um you know kind of taken the same direction as the u.s bars mm-hmm. and uh they've got a lot of uh, micro brews and small breweries that make uh, ipas and uh, and the like and it's it's been it's so much better to be able to go into a pub and get a, a good pint of something uh, unique rather than the, the same mass market stuff mm-hmm. you pull a pint um it's not refrigerated it's at cellar temperature um, and it's not carbonated that type of ale was dying out in the country and there was Mm -hmm. a big movement to try and bring it back and i think there was there were some tax things around that of of how to incentivize pubs to bring back the proper proper beer as they would say (laughs) i think the tax thing was uh the vat started applying to pub poured beers equally with a beer you bought in the supermarket I think that that is uh, what I'm thinking and so of. So people would just go to the supermarket and buy a six pack and go home. And, I think uh, that is what I'm thinking of. I can confidently tell you that the that did not affect my pub going. <laughs> I don't think I don't think people really understand like the strength of the pub culture in the UK. Yeah. <clears throat> it is it is a way of life. <laughs> For so yeah, many, for so many people, it's everyone's living room. Uh, yeah, the houses here are, are generally much, much smaller than in uh, in the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. Even out in the even out in the country, uh, uh, towns are arranged differently. The villages are all kind of packed in. The houses are all packed in within a very small area, and uh, and then everyone uses the local pub as like it was their living room and. And that's just so much different than in the U.S. Uh, It creates a very special atmosphere. What is a song that has been playing in your head lately? I have been uh, absolutely addicted to Tool's new album. Uh, And I honestly, I I can't stop listening to Fear Inoculum. I I think it's, uh, it's due to how much it relates to current times. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably started listening to it in, I think maybe January, um, and COVID hit in March, uh, 
and it starts out with bless this immunity <laughs> and oh, gosh. Uh, this is a it sounds like a very sort of prescient uh very future telling uh yeah album. it's it's crazy i think it came out in november or something so um of 2019 so before things before COVID, but it's really, uh, it's great. I think it's one of my favorite albums of all time. I've been listening to it nonstop for a year and uh, I love it. And your favorite uh, song from the album? All of them? One <laughs> of those. Yeah. Well, there aren't many albums uh, to, for me like this, but it's one that if I listen to it, it's generally from start to finish. Wow. I don't mm. pick out one song at all. Uh, hearing just one song on its own seems really weird yeah uh so that one really resonated around covid times for me because of uh, a lot of the lyrics um and kind of the moodiness of it uh, but i also um also played a video game uh called death stranding mm -hmm. uh starting in march i think just when when uh covid started hit lockdown and that one also resonated with me because the, the whole the, the point of that game is uh, the setting for that game is near future. There has been a, a kind of a, a mass extinction event, um, a disease um, uh, that has forced the world into basically little small enclaves. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the heroes of the world are delivery people. Uh, so you take on someone who's your sole job in the game is to deliver packages. So it's a current events game, basically. So, <laughs> it, I mean, it just resonated so dramatically uh, with what was happening because, um, you know, those times in, in March uh, when everything was locked down and everyone's trying to get things delivered and, you know, the delivery guy would show up and they were just like, oh, you've brought my whatever I needed. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, and, and the idea of we're all hiding away in our homes just, I mean, perfectly fit in with the, the game in real life. It was it was crazy. And to this day, uh, whenever I see a screenshot or um, there's a band called Low Roar um, who did the soundtrack for the for the whole uh, game, uh, I listen to that and it just like immediately takes me back to those early days of of lockdown. It's crazy so interesting that one there's so much art that that seems to fit right in to this time but two how much that art is is having an effect on on people like that's going to be the thing that i remember from this you know 20 years from now it's one of those things that will take you back immediately right. to to the time you're like oh i remember the first time i heard the song it was like the first week of lockdown or yeah. Right. And in another sense memory, what's a smell that you love that reminds you of home? Barbecue. <laughs> that is an excellent answer. Barbecue. And one of, I mean, it's one of the things that I miss um, from the U S is the British are not very good with barbecue, proper barbecue. They, mm -hmm. they, they call anything you put on a grill. They call that barbecue. And I'm like, there's no barbecue sauce involved. It's not barbecue. Like <laughs> you're grilling that hamburger. You're not barbecuing that hamburger. Right. Uh, and there are a few barbecue joints around, but they're really poor compared to 
to what we grew up with. Mm-hmm. Smoking a pig behind a church overnight. And, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, those were the days. <laughs> what is one thing that everyone should see in London? I'm a big proponent of telling people to go to the top of the shard mm. uh, rather than doing uh, the wheel. The the, yeah. Eye, whatever it is. Yeah. The London Eye is, is an absolute travesty. It's it's crowded. It's boring. You don't really go that high. You, you can't move for, for 30 minutes um, while you're going around in this stupid thing. <laughs> it's a complete waste of complete and total waste of time. It's expensive. takes forever. Uh, the shard is cheaper. You you go, I don't know how many stories up, 80 stories up or something. Um, you can stay however long you want. It's gorgeous. You see the entire city. It's yeah, it's fantastic. That sounds like an excellent recommendation. What is something that brings you joy? My dog. Oh, puppy. I don't know what I would do without him, um, particularly through lockdown. Uh, uh, I work uh, upstairs and he's at daycare most of the day. We send him off to the countryside every day uh, to run around in a cow pasture with 20 other dogs. Uh, and when I come home or when I come downstairs in the afternoon and he's home, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Mm. Seeing him come out of his, his crate, wagging his tail to come say hi. Every time I come downstairs, it's amazing. Nothing like some, uh, some cuddles to get you through your day. What gives you hope? Long pregnant pause. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We can edit those right out, you know, (laughs) Oh. Or maybe we can just leave the silence and that's <laughs> maybe that's speaking for a lot of us right now. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it's it's yeah, I would say my friends give me hope. Um there seems to be so much um lack of empathy in the world and ignorance. Uh my friends though um kind of keep me sane. Um open-minded, um, intelligent, thoughtful. Um, they, they really help me, uh, believe that there are, <laughs> there, there are good people out there and that, and there are smart people doing good things. Uh, I love seeing my, my friends succeed and, uh, you know, make an impact and knowing that people like that are out there and helping the world tick over, um, and get better is, a nice counterbalance to some of the idiocy that you see on, on the news and social media. When do you feel the most American? Probably meeting new people uh, in, in London or uh, when traveling. Um, we've got some American friends that have lived in the UK for a long time and their accents change and they don't really get much stick from people but uh if i'm meeting someone new at work it's very immediate that immediately clear that that i'm american and uh it always comes up and then there's always this dance of oh canadian are you american uh they try to feel out are you that kind of american we all know that one i think <laughs> Uh, yeah, they <laughs> they don't seem to understand that most people that escape America um, are, are more liberally minded. Um, 
but they're so they're always a very cautious kind of feeling out your politics and and then when they find out that I'm that I'm quite liberal, then they ask the inevitable question of what the hell is wrong with America? <laughs> Questions we ask ourselves every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so what is something that you would like Americans back home to know? I guess the thing that comes up the most with my family and friends back home is around healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find the discussion in America to be ignorant mm-hmm. um, and full of just false information. This idea that um, socialized medicine is uh, a path towards communism or something is mm-hmm. utterly ridiculous. Uh, the healthcare here is it's not perfect but it is miles and miles and miles better than North America or the U.S. Um, it's, I, d- I don't understand why anyone would be in favor of a for-profit medical system, and I find it immoral and unconscionable to support that now. Everyone has the right to be healthy and to receive mm-hmm. medical attention when they need it. It's the groundwork that builds our society and mm-hmm. to to make that uh subject to your income or uh your job i think is highly immoral and is is the main reason that we have such disparity uh in an economic system in in, in america well Bill, thank you so much for joining us today it's been a pleasure well, the pleasure's all mine, Chesney. Thank you, Weldon. Thank you both for uh, for having me on.